Okay, so we've done the recording. Do you think I should go live to tape? We should. Sounds great. You're sure? Absolutely. So you're not going to be embarrassed by the sniffles or anything no, else? No, I have. A, I had a few sniffles, but I'm, I might be coming down with a cold. Oh. I'm in a little bit of denial, though, because, you know, New Year's Eve is tomorrow night. Yeah. Got to be willing to party a little bit. I feel like, you so. know, maybe I should leave all the sniffles in all the time, and people could just take account of Joe's health and get back to us and just... It could be a way of like monitoring. I love it. <laughs> it's the new economic index. <laughs> he sounded well. Good it's the though. new index of something. Normally, you know, it's the Skype connection, which is a little fiddly, and I need to go through and take out the annoying right. stuff. But it sounded good, so I don't see why we can't just go with this. Go with it, man. <laughs> it's a great conversation about a great topic with a great guy. Yeah. Boom. <laughs> so ha- happy New Year! This is it for 2016. You know, our three-year anniversary passed recently. Yeah, just last week. Yeah, came up on. I think on my Facebook memory thing. You get those Facebook memories, Joe? I do. You enjoy those? I, mostly no. <laughs> uh, but some of them are good. Like so, some of them, like I saw one the other day. I was like, wow, that was, that was kind of neat. I don't remember saying that, but it, uh, that's kind of neat. Okay, so keep the feedback coming. Rate us on iTunes, oralargumentpodcast at gmail.com. You can also use our little contact form on oralargument.org if you want to do that. I, I think we should cut the nonsense sh- short because my memory is we had a little bit of nonsense with Jeremy at the beginning too. Right. Which uh, is, so Jeremy Chef, great conversation. Uh, we're on hiatus next week. Because mm-hmm. uh, you hate us. Cause That's what I you usually us. say. And, yeah. um, and then we'll be back. Hello? Jeremy. Hey, Christian. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm well, thanks. So how do you guys know each other? Christian Turner and Jeremy Chef? This is Joe Miller, uh, by the way. We don't, I don't think. Oh, so, Un- unless we met at Alps. Because your greeting just there was as, as affable and amiable as could be imagined. Well, that's just the kind of guy I am. <laughs> that's what I was going to well, say. That's, that's so true. You know, yeah. uh, we're, we're fortunate to be joined uh, by, by Jeremy Chef, um, who is uh, sort of the polymath's polymath, uh, uh, a Japanese trademark law project, um, <laughs> author of the uh, intimidatingly engaging new paper Legal Sets, available oh, on you. SSRN. Uh, yeah. Which we're going to have to have you back for an episode where we just talk about that paper. Um, yeah, me too. And, uh, and, you know, people might need extensive, you know, mental health remediation after that because it's so <laughs> mind-breaking. Yeah, I, you know, I, it needs a, a substantial revision. I feel like I need to put a lot of the more technical stuff into appendices so that the, the, the text reads a little bit less intimidatingly. Because mm. it's really not that complicated when you get down to it. It's stuff that any, you know, any high school student could do. Uh, you're really building up my esteem the, there. <laughs> once you get past the, lang- the, 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 the symbolic language of all of it. Mm. Uh, but, but that's not, we're not talking to you about any of those amazing things. We're not going to talk about sets? I mean, this is like... We're not going to talk about today. That's a Next time. This is the perfect topic for me. You know, it, is, it really is. This goes, that's right in your mathematics sweet spot. Yeah. Yeah. So we're and, not going to do it. And just like Jeremy said, it's like it's a bunch of easy stuff. This is what I tell my students all the time. This is a bunch of easy stuff. Listen, I think everyone together. can agree the year 2016 is about suffering. So no, we're not going to talk about the thing you would really enjoy talking about, <laughs> like legal sets. We're going to talk about something else. You know, as we record this, I actually don't know if this is going to go out in 2016 or 2017. Mm. Because I haven't decided yet whether to ship this like live to tape immediately after we finish it today. Yeah. I mean, Jeremy's line sounds pretty good. Yeah. Or just wait. Maybe I don't have a lot of cleanup to do, or maybe we'll just ship it next week. So I don't, I don't know. Well, we'll see how it goes. And you have even more time to decide because apparently 2016, because it hasn't been awful enough, is going to last by an additional leap second this year. Oh, geez. I think it was planned in advance though. It, it this was, is, but this is not a game time decision. There's I think a... it's suitably, I think it's suitably annoying that it, it, it's like, no, this year needs to go on a little longer. Right. That's part of the special hell of yeah. 2016. Hmm. Are you, are you a big believer in like years having identities? Oh, sure. I'm, and numbers and numerology and all that terrible, terrible stuff. Hmm. Uh. Like I'm very excited that on this driving trip I just got back from that my odometer went through the reading 7777. Right. That was, I whooped for joy <laughs> over that. <laughs> did you whoop out loud for real? Totally. You did not. I totally did. Ugh. Yeah, well, there is something to this, this idea that even though you know our, our numerical uh, system is in some sense arbitrary, uh, that we treat it as if it weren't, right? That stock markets respond to round numbers right. and, and things like that. Um, so, you know, even if it isn't necessarily true, it's socially true, right? 
Yeah, and I contain multitudes. So for <laughs> me, it's socially true just for me. Well, yeah. and our, our, our whole sense of logic, I mean, there is, people have logic. I mean, you know, we, we engage in logic, but it's not exactly, <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know, I don't, we don't, this could derail the whole thing, but um, yeah. You know, it's like we we have we are where we are because of the entire history of life on Earth, and mm. and our decisions are you know roundness. Who knows what what signals have encouraged us to feel warm fuzzies when when right. we experience a sense of roundness and 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 whatever. I don't. And, and suitably yeah. enough, uh, I I think what you what you've done is given me something to be even more excited about and look forward to even more greatly, which is when it goes through eight 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 eight, because. That's round in two senses. The digits themselves look round, and then the number <laughs> has this round feeling. Right. So that's like the ultimate. You're going to hear that one. I think it, <laughs> no matter where you are. I think you're in China, eight, eight is a very lucky number in China, right? And so you just see wow. a bunch of eights And And of together. course, eight is, is two fours, and eight, 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 eight has four digits. <laughs> I'm familiar with it. So, right. wow. Now, now, I'll say this, but you know, this is just for the... This this part of the show is just for those listeners who who have written us to beg not to do this sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> I joke, actually. We 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 don't we don't actually get those people have stopped listening long yeah, ago. I yeah, think. we but, lost them long ago. Um, so so but, let's, but I have to say though that I I like you. Like I'm not immune to this. I'm joking with you. I mean, you know, see, seeing like a bunch of sevens on the odometer that's it's exciting for reasons that I can't explain and I'm somewhat embarrassed about. But unlike you, I will see like it's approaching that. You know, like all ones, especially all, because that's the one, like all ones, because you're not likely to get to 222,000, mm, right? But 111 right. is something you might see if you keep a car long enough. Right. Um, yeah, I'll never see that. With all the ones all the way across. And like, that's it. So I, I'm thinking, whoa, that's coming up soon. I don't know why, but maybe I should pay attention. <laughs> right. But then I forget. And then the next time I look, it's like, it's messed up. It's passed. Right. Does that happen to you? It's a bummer. Yeah. Jeremy, are you, <laughs> Jeremy, are, you, still, are you still on the line? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, pretty soon we're going to have to start talking about speed trap law if we stay on this road because we're talking a lot about cars. So let's shift. Okay. Um, uh, Jeremy, as soon as I saw you sort of pr- announce and promote this new development, uh, opensourceproperty.org, I knew that I wanted you to, to join us because I just think it's really interesting. And, uh, you know, Christian has sort of done a number of different uh, approaches to. Uh, casebook creation and distribution. I've done some different things. Uh, the people who are involved in your project, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, I'll just read the names so I get them all without missing anybody. And you've listed them, you know, alpha by family name Steve Clowney, James Grimmelman, uh, Mike Grinberg, Jeremy Chef, yourself, and Rebecca Tushnet. I mean, talk about a pack of heavy hitters. This is just amazing <laughs> stuff. And, and both yeah. James, uh, Grimmelman and and Rebecca have also done yet other alternative casebook publishing stuff yeah. uh, in addition to this project. So I'm just fascinated at, I mean, it's it, it, in terms of its production quality, it's highly attractive aesthetically, and I think things like that matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do too, and thanks. And, and actually, James bears the lion's share of the credit for that. Uh, he is a very... A good typesetter's aesthetic sensibility, and uh, was responsible for the early layouts that we ended up building on and using in the project. Yeah, it it really is uh, attractive. It's very navigable. It's very easy to use. I looked at your build. Is you do you teach a full year long class? No, I teach a semester. Um, so the first time I taught it was in a four credit uh, arrangement, and I'll be teaching it this coming semester in a five credit arrangement. Okay, but but over a single semester so 13 weeks because so, your full your full build book is a pretty big book let's back up because yeah. I, I know we've done shows about this before but um because not all of our listeners are law students yeah i'm so excited lawyers. i jump right yeah, in. No, so no, Christian, I, you back us so, up and so, tell- so, so the basic the basic problem is that that textbooks that students use especially in law school i don't know about undergrad i assume there's a similar kind of spiraling out of control going on there well in terms of cost absolutely so so you know books are upwards of two hundred dollars or so or more now i don't even know what they are um but i think it's over two hundred dollars for new editions of legal case books especially for 1l bread and butter courses they they're they're well over 200 it's and and the tradition since before i was a law student is that groups of professors will get together and write these case books for case book publishers and there are well-known publishers we've had a show about this before i'll link it up in the show notes 
um, early in the run of the show. I don't. I, I feel like we've talked about this since then, Joe, but I don't remember exactly yeah, I don't when. Either, but 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 we did have a show just about this. Right. I think it's called like several billion dollars, where we <laughs> we try to estimate like how much are students paying for these each. I don't remember what we did, but some something like that. So so students will have to buy if they take how many maybe five classes. Maybe not all of them involve casebooks uh, in their second and third year, but there's a it's a substantial expenditure for law students each semester to buy these books. Right. Just like with the undergraduate game. New editions of casebooks come out, understandably, because the law changes. Um, some areas of law, well, more, property more law than others, all, that much, all right? that much, exactly. But um, but many areas of the law do, and even property law, people like to use contemporary cases for like adverse possession, these other issues. Sure. I mean, you know, it's instead of the same old, same old. Sure. Um, and so, oftentimes, students will have to buy new editions, and and you don't get the discount on used. And increasingly, the publishers are trying to use electronic supplements and other things that basically require buying something new, even if you buy a used textbook. Right. I think we did a show about that as well from some early efforts of some of the publishers to do that. Um, and so a lot of people are trying to do something about this. Uh, Joe, you've got the kind of the Radiohead in Rainbows model uh, with Semaphore Press, which is you have authors of case books, which are traditional but downloadable in a way. Mm-hmm. And um, not downloadable in a way. They are downloadable mm-hmm. and students are encouraged to pay, I think, $30. Is that still yeah. your your price, but Correct. they pay what they want. Correct. So if they can't afford it or they don't wish to pay for it, they don't have to. Yeah. They could pay anywhere from zero to – you would accept a $10,000 payment, would you I not? would, totally. Okay. okay, just making sure. As soon as we figured out it was not an error, we would accept it. And about 10 years ago, I built a system called Hydrotext that um, allows you to build a, a, a casebook from a commons of materials in the same way that you would make a playlist in, in right. iTunes or in a – in your favorite music service. At that point, it was iTunes was the model. Now, you know, there's so many different models, but you just put them together and it spits out something in LaTeX and makes a nice looking book and makes HTML. I even had an ebook, you know, an EPUB uh, output at some mm-hmm. point. So a lot of people have been... And the Berkman Center has got the H2O platform. That's and come the, along, So there yeah. are a number of different approaches to doing this. I feel like I was way too early with this and, and haven't stuck with it enough. And uh, Joe, you've had an ongoing business out of this, really. I mean, it's... Well, we've got five titles, one of which is James Grillman's Internet Law Book. That is true. And we uh, just our most recent one is a civil rights litigation book. So we're, we're sort of, you know, but it's a side. I mean, it's not our main thing. We're not. And this is a I mean, I'm a law professor. And this is a, this is a new thing you guys are doing with this open source property casebook. And yeah. you, you kind of break it up into the different topics. And and maybe we can talk in a little bit about why property is as, as kind of a you know, especially kind of a grab bag subject. And so it, it's an interesting choice for, for this. Partly, you know, I, I teach it, which is why I have a property book uh, built on my system, right? But um, uh, I guess um, maybe a place to start is, you know, you as kind of the new entrant in this. Was this effort in response to a problem or was it yeah. just that you wanted to make a case book or, or you know, all of us are coming at this from different perspectives. I wonder what yours was. Yeah, so I mean, this came out of a very particular incident. <clears throat> I don't know. If, so, Kristen, you teach property. You are probably aware of Aspen's title in this space, which is the Duke Manier and Creer uh, casebook, now in its eighth edition, I think. Um, and uh, so anyone who teaches property will remember back in the summer of, I think, 2014, when Aspen uh, started moving to this, what they call uh, Casebook Connect model. Yep. Uh, and Duke Minier was the, the, the tip of the spear or the thin end of the wedge with this. The <laughs> idea was basically that uh, because Duke Minier is a very, very heavily subscribed title. I mean, I don't know industry figures, but I imagine it's one of the most heavily subscribed case books that there is. For Full stop. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, so uh, it's, it's, a, it's a heavy hitter. It's a market leader. And it was being used to uh, kind of launch this new uh, business model. And the business model basically works like this. Instead of buying a casebook, which you can still do, uh, but instead of buying a casebook for, say, $250, uh, which is a big lift, uh, what you can do is essentially you can get a hybrid set of rights that is not ownership of a text. What you'll get is you'll get a license to connect to the Casebook Connect service, which is an online service uh, that allows uh, access to uh, the electronic version of the text, um, uh, subject to particular license terms, which include uh, closed proprietary formats so that you can't copy more than a certain set amount of the of the text, and 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 uh, you need a particular key to log in and all of that. Um, 
And uh, that costs significantly less. Uh, but the key there is uh, that you don't have a physical copy of the casebook that you own, and here's the kicker, could potentially sell in the used book market. Um, and uh, for those who don't know a lot about uh, uh, copyright law, copyright it, law includes this uh, particular doctrine called the first sale doctrine, which means that once you buy a physical copy of a copyrighted work, you can sell that copy of the copyrighted work. You can't make a new one, but the one that you have, if you want to get rid of it and sell it to somebody else, you can. Now, in markets like legal education, uh, that can be a real problem for the, the publisher because they want to get payment from every student who needs to use the book, right? You, you scale up that way. And if, uh, well, well, let's face it, though. Their, their incentive is to get payments from everybody, even if they're not students. <laughs> right, sure. <laughs> they, but, as many payments as possible. Right, pay, pay, but the pay, point pay, pay. is that you want to get one per user, right? Sure. You want every user of the book to be paying the publisher. And if instead a user has an option of paying an earlier user of the book, that eats into the market, and the booksellers want to avoid that. First sale doctrine is not uh, uh, popular with publishers, understandably, right? They are in uh, this business uh, largely for profit, and, and, and that's one of the ways that they make their profit, and, and eliminating the used book market would increase those profits. It is not, however, good for students, and it's not good for copyright law uh, in the view of those of us who, who think that the first sale doctrine is an important way of expanding access uh, to copyrighted works uh, to populations that wouldn't be able to access them at a price uh, at the uh, super competitive price that one could call it a monopoly price, although those, there are others who would disagree with that characterization. But the higher price that a copyright owner can charge because nobody else is allowed to make copies. Um, so we saw, uh, I and a couple of my co-authors saw this move to kind of uh, break up the casebook uh, business model into a very expensive copy uh, that you can purchase, a physical copy that you can purchase that comes with all the rights that uh, uh, go with copyright law, including the first sale rights of purchasers, or a less expensive, highly uh, uh, regulated uh, burden uh, a set of rights that burdens the uh, user with particular license terms that can be changed uh, at will uh, by the, uh, the, the publisher down the road. Um, we saw that as... Uh, as bad for our students and bad for us, uh, and you know, frankly, bad for authors who assign or, or license their copyrights to these publishers. Um, and we, a few of us decided, I decided in particular, that I wasn't going to adopt any Aspen titles anymore after that because I didn't trust the publisher. Uh, and so then uh, for those uh, titles that uh, I was using in my courses, particularly for trademark law and for property law, that meant that I needed to come up with an alternative. Now, fortunately, I didn't have to teach property law again that year. I was rotated out, but I was rotating in in 2015. And uh, so Rebecca Tushnet and, and James Grimmelman and I had had some conversations about what to do. And in the late spring of 2015, and I, as I was looking ahead to teaching property in uh, the fall of 2015, uh, we decided to actually get serious about putting together our own set of materials. Uh, and we recruited Mike Grinberg and, and Steve Clowney as well to help put those together. And uh, the, the idea was we would work on it over the summer and uh, by the fall, hopefully, I would have a casebook to teach from because I was not going to assign Duke Veneer again. Uh, and that sounds like very ambitious timing. Like <laughs> it was incredibly ambitious timing, and we had a pretty detailed production schedule that, of course, we blew at various points uh, <laughs> over the summer and even the fall. New modules were continuing uh, to be produced as I was teaching them. By the end, I think you know a new module would be you know a draft would be ready to roll out to my students a week ahead of when I was going to be right. teaching from it. Uh, but it got done. Right. Uh, and, you know, that is the kind of pressure that can get academics to actually do something, right? <laughs> right. That somebody right. else is not going to be able to teach their class unless you get this done tonight. Right. Um, so, so it worked. And then in the spring of 2016, uh, everybody else on the project taught from these materials as well. Oh, uh, so you were, you were really the first, you were the canary in, in the coal mine, as it were. You well, were my the first students person were. That, okay. <laughs> yeah, my students were. My hundred odd uh, St. John's uh, law students uh, who were incredibly good sports about the whole thing and gave a uh, very helpful feedback on, on the alpha, you know, version of the casebook. Uh, they were the, the, the guinea pigs as it were, and, and were 
very, very good about it. And I think appreciative of the fact that I had saved every one of them $200 roughly, you know, you multiply that by a hundred, you know, that's $20,000 uh, that St. John's law students didn't have to spend. Yeah. I'm very mindful of that I have not assigned a case book since 2009. I think when I, my second year teaching at Georgia, when I switched to this other system. And so it is yeah. a tremendous savings over time. Yeah. You, you never quite get it back. And, and um, in terms of like credit, I mean, you know, I mean, uh, not Fair that, enough. I, yeah. I don't, it's not a reason to do it. And, and that's part of the problem. I'm, so I'm, I want to maybe explore unlocking the problem of how to encourage more people to get in, involved. And, and like I said, maybe my effort was too early and, and, and maybe a little too fiddly. Um, you guys were successful in, in, in launching this. I mean, I have a bunch of different books that I've used, um, that, that I've made, but, but yours is, is very similar, uh, to, an ordinary casebook in terms of notes and there's even a teacher's manual. Right. And, and so you have something which is a ready substitute rather than probably what I tend to teach from, which is a little bit different. And, and yeah. I wonder uh, how uh, among your group, I mean, it sounds like you guys were all motivated by, you know, thinking about the students, thinking about the problems that it would cause both for copyright law, which is maybe specific to, to your group being a group of property people, but also, you know, the concern for students I think is, is universal. Do you do you see a similar problem with kind of unlocking this kinds of this kind of effort in in other fields and and is there a kind of cachet people get from a casebook with a publisher that that counts for something within the academy that they don't get by making their own materials and do you think that that this kind of open source thing because it's it's got a website and and it looks professional and and it will be used by people I mean do you think that is an equivalent. I mean, I, I think it is an equivalent, but do you yeah. think it will be viewed that way by people in various law schools? How, how do you feel about yeah. this? Yeah. So this is, this is an interesting set of questions, right? One is, uh, what's good for the authors of the casebook, And another is what's good for the adopters of a casebook. I think everybody agrees. It's good for the students who have to, uh, who have to get a casebook that they get a high quality casebook that doesn't cost them a lot of money or even right. better it's free. And then the question um, is, of course, why doesn't it stop there? Full stop. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. So, yeah. And I think the, the reason it doesn't stop there is because there are competing concerns in uh, the professoriate, right? Uh, among them are the ones you alluded to, which is uh, what's good for your professional career. Uh, typically, casebooks, even, you know, with major publishers, I think casebooks, my, my sense may be wrong, but casebooks do not add much to the portfolio of a scholar. Uh, certainly not as compared with original research uh, or, uh, you know, or, or uh, scholarly monographs or, 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 you know, law review articles, the kind of things that we all do to get tenure to advance our careers. Yeah. Um, I think there was a time a few decades ago when that when that was when that wasn't quite true. They actually were a little bit heftier. Yeah, um, but I, but, but know, I think it hasn't true. been true for a very long time. Yeah. And I think, you know, part of that is that the market has gotten crowded. Right. Uh, that that, uh, you know, that the big lift of producing a casebook is is not as big as it was. Uh, maybe uh, when, you know, in order to assemble all these cases, you needed, you know, like Langdale Library in your backyard to be able to put it together. <laughs> um, and uh, now that everything is more accessible, that that the, the costs of producing something like this are lower. Um, that said, you know, there is also uh, the idea that, uh, you know, Casebooks have to be uh, learned by the professor who's going to be teaching from them before they can be taught to the students. And that's a lift in itself, right? Often property law being a 1L course uh, and a course that uh, is about an area of law that moves much more slowly than other areas of law. Often this is not a course that people make their scholarly. This is not a subject that people make their scholarly careers on right uh some people do right christian but uh but yeah. other people you know generally it's uh, if you're going to be a property scholar you you often have something else going on yeah i don't i don't i don't write in property doctrine right exactly yeah. and so you know it's the kind of thing that it often becomes a service course for for legal uh academics uh you know you got to teach something besides the one subject that you love that only fills you know a seminar of 10 or 20 students every year uh, we need you to teach some of our first year courses. Why don't you take property? And if that's the kind of course that property is going to be, then the casebook, if it's going to be picked up, has to be easy to use uh, for uh, an academic for whom this is not necessarily a specialty. Uh, and the kind of off the rack uh, version with uh, 
teaching materials and slides, manuals, things like that, uh, is really important to those kinds of faculty. Very much uh, so. Who, uh, you know, you know, you, Christian, you called it fiddly, who, who are not going to be mixing and matching their ideal uh, selection of subjects to teach and particular details to focus on and particular arrangements. They just want something that works, that is not too much uh, uh, effort for them to get up and running. Uh, and I think we've been very mindful of that in putting together this set of materials. Now, one thing that I, you know, when I see the the, the availability of the teacher's manual and those sort of supporting materials, I, I think you're right. That's really important in a context like this. I think another thing that I wanted to ask you about that, that kind of struck me when I saw the project is, uh, and before I had fully looked at sort of who handled which, which module, um, five authors, that's a lot of wrangling. Um, yeah. to, if your goal is to create a text that has a, a voice that can be identified as a unified voice. And I say that um, from the perspective of the IP survey book that I co-authored with Lydia Lauren, where, you know, because we had taught the course at the same law school for a while, had had many conversations about it, and poured over every page of that casebook repeatedly, uh, it, it speaks with one voice. And, and that's a challenge when there are two people. There are five of you. Yeah. Uh, so I'm interested in hearing just some nuts and bolts about like how you manage to produce it. Um, you each have your modules, but surely there was there was some kind of or, or was there some kind of process for kind of considering things as a group. And then add to that the fact that you make very clear on your website, you're really encouraging people. Hey, if you have another unit that you want to create and contribute to the pool of material, we would love to receive that. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so, but, so, I, but I don't see, for example, um, on the on the website, I don't see for people who are considering contributing, I don't see something like a, you know, a, a spec that tells yeah. you how to produce things or yeah. how to create things. Let so, me add. Let me add something before Jeremy jumps in, and okay, because I, I I would encourage you, Jeremy, also to to let us know. I mean, do you agree with Joe? Is is it important for the Textual materials to have a unified voice. I mean, because these are. It, it was important yeah. for me and Lydia to write well, our no, book to have it. I, I think, could imagine I think a lot of people thinking it's not right. important at all. But, but I think that's an interesting conversation to have because yeah. this this kind of you know that this tea, this kind of thing and and what I worked on tease that up right. What is basically what is a class? What is the role of a text in a class? Right. And is the text in the class a bunch of sources or is it? its own thing, which is encountered and, and needs to speak with a singular voice. I don't know. What do you, what do you think, Jeremy? Yeah. So um, I think one of the things that we kind of reconciled ourselves to early on was that if we wanted to get this thing done in the time that we were giving ourselves to do it, that kind of consistency of voice across the entire project uh, was going to be difficult to maintain. Uh, so, uh, you know, we did have conversations uh, back and forth over email about uh, whether we thought it was uh, whether we thought we ought to have particular conversations about uh, style and tone, particularly for the, the note and question materials following the primary sources. Um, and ultimately, the way that we ended up handling it was to give individual lead authors for particular modules significant autonomy to write it up as they saw fit. And to exchange comments on drafts, just in word track changes and in emails uh, back and forth as the drafts were circulated among the group. Uh, so typically, uh, our production schedule called for a draft of a module to be circulated internally among the five authors you know, three weeks or so before I was going to have to, uh, or maybe two weeks before I was going to have to distribute it to my students. Uh, and give about a week or 10 days for each of us to circulate comments uh, on that, and then a few more days for those comments to be incorporated as the primary author saw fit. Um, and what you end up with is a set of modules that do have slightly different voices. I think, you know, James uh, made a comment at one point when we were about halfway through churning out each of these chapters, and it said, you know, I can definitely tell which ones are Rebecca's, which ones are mine, which ones are Jeremy's, which ones are Mike's, which ones are Steve's, uh, based on uh, the voice, you know, based on, you know, the voice in the notes and, the, and, and so forth. And, you know, part of that 
works because property is such a modular subject mm. and we each selected modules that we were really interested in and those interests tend to run together right so rebecca has interests in zoning and in uh and in mortgages and she's responsible for those chapters and those chapters read very similarly and, and focus on very similar uh kinds of issues presented by those topics issues uh, about social justice, about uh, racial injustice uh, that you know really crop up in a big way in those areas in particular that don't crop up in as big a way, for example, when you're talking about the estate system uh, where right. uh, you know and 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 you see similar kinds of affinities among the authors uh, and similar uh, kinds of breakup of the voice that that you you see coming through each of those modules. I don't see that as necessarily a problem. Um, you know, if you're going to do an open source project, uh, one of the things that you got to accept is that there isn't a single boss with uh, responsibility for making sure everything goes together. That it's a community-based project, and 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 you know there are strengths and weaknesses, and we think that the strengths outweigh the weaknesses. Uh, and it looks that way to me too. Although it, one could say that if if you look at the software tradition or the Wikipedia example, there actually are bosses. Right. There are yeah. people who who kind of yeah. take it upon themselves to to be a singular sort of voice on top of the entire project and, and make some calls. Not too often, but but they're there to make calls that say, you know what, this isn't canonical. This is this isn't. Uh, right. And do, and do you envision your, your project evolving in such a way that that one or a small number of you wind up doing something like that? Would that be a good idea in this context? I don't know. I think that the legal academy is sufficiently small that uh, if everybody wanted to do their own build and, and post it on our website, that would be fine, I think. Um, and, uh, you know, and we'll be creating tools to do that. You know, some of the tools that uh, uh, that we envision for the project are just not there yet. We wanted to make sure that we got the materials out and right. people aware of them in time to start thinking about adopting them or at least incorporating them into the courses alongside whatever commercial texts they they already use yep. um so you know uh, ultimately you know the other thing about casebooks is that interoperability is not an issue as it is with software right <laughs> uh, you know it's it's the kind of thing where if uh, if joe or christian you and i are teaching property law courses from slightly different versions of the casebook that's okay. Our students won't crash if we do that, right? <laughs> right. Uh, At least not for that Whereas reason. <laughs> with software, that might be an issue. Um, and, and so, you know, a, a kind of a community approach is, does not necessarily present the same kinds of issues uh, that it might with software, where those kinds of issues of, of interoperability and, and backwards compatibility uh, are, are, are important. I found when I was initially trying, you know, I was giving some talks on Hydrotext. This is like, eight years ago or so and and just trying to explain the idea that you know there's there's the tech part of it which is it like can be fiddly and and can be a problem there is also the kind of the the architecture hurdle that people have to get over and i tried to explain it as um um you know that the that interoperability of software has opened up a whole bunch of doors so traditionally in the production of uh, a large unit of information, there's a one-to-one -one model. Like one person works on one version of a thing and ships it, and you use that thing, right? Yeah. And 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 maybe several people will work, but there's a small group will work together and produce one version. Then there's Wikipedia, and the genius of Wikipedia is that it is many to one, right? You get many different people working on one version of a thing, right? Um, and there is one canonical version of Wikipedia, which is dynamic, ever-changing, et cetera, but there is an official version. There are all kinds of kind of meta communities um, within Wikipedia that help to produce that canonical version. And what Hydrotext was about and what this kind of uh, open source version is, although on a, on a kind of a topic-by-topic -topic, um, uh, scale, is a many-to-many um, sort of uh, yeah. uh, architecture, right? Where, where many different people can produce elements, which then can be used to produce many different versions of a thing comprising those elements. Yeah. And, and so getting, but what's interesting is that with textbooks, I feel like this is almost, well, there's, there's, there's a kind of natural on, on that, on the many 
ends on the output side, on, on the many users on the output side, this should be kind of natural. I went through law school, and I don't think I ever had a class that went through the textbook from page one to the end without all of my classes. You know, you look at the syllabus is basically the choose your own adventure of the of the class, right? I mean, and we were jumping all around the book, right? Um, which breaks up a little bit the kind of authorial intention and voice that you were mentioning earlier, Joe, sure. because you, the textbook in every class I ever had was basically just a, a, a bunch of source materials, uh, whether the notes were valuable or not kind of dependent on how the professor taught the class. Now I have to say it, I think when I first started at George, I was uh, there, there were ma- many more than at least in my experience um, when I was a visiting professor at Fordham or as a law student, many more profs who did go in that one to you know page nine hundred order, and so jumping around had some kind of cost to it, right? Students also, I think, don't like jumping us around as much, but jumping around as much. Although you know, like I said, if every single class does it, is just kind of what what you're used to. Yeah. So anyway, there's this idea, right? That that already. There are many different versions of a casebook, even if it's produced by one group, because yeah. people are doing it in different orders. But putting all of that together is 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 a little bit of a leap where you have to explain kind of conceptually, here's a new way that we can produce source materials for classes, some of which – some of these ways are familiar, you know, that you can kind of – put the sources together in whatever order you want. A lot of professors do that. Not all, but but many do. This idea that you can all add a little bit is also somewhat familiar because professors often will have their own little supplements that they will add to this yeah. section or that, right? Sure. So yeah. I, I feel like it, it builds on stuff which is familiar, but in a in a way which has to be explained, or at least I found had to be explained. And I, you know, yeah, like, so- with my project, I didn't get much traction with it and that, you know, whether for whatever reason, but are you finding the same thing? Are you having, or do people just naturally understand how they would put well, these things together? I mean, it's early yet, but one of the things uh, that, that is useful in talking and thinking about this is I think separating the platform from the content. Yeah. Right. So it sounds like Christian, you were building both the content and a platform for delivery of that content. We are outsourcing the platform to platforms that legal uh, uh, academics are already familiar with. It's all in Word, right? And we are distributing it in Microsoft Word and telling people, go put it together however you want. Cut it, paste it, edit it, add new stuff, take stuff out, however right. you want. Uh, or And we're also distributing PDFs uh, for, for people who prefer to work with PDF or, or to just distribute it as PDF. Um, but, you know, the platform familiarity, I think, is, is a big part of that. Uh, you know, you're already learning a bunch of new content, uh, you know, you don't want to, on top of that, have to learn a whole new set of, of tools uh, for accessing and, and, and working with that content. Uh, so that was, you know, a conscious choice on our part. And it's something that we, we could really only do uh, with the kind of rights model that we were, uh, that we were really uh, interested in adopting, which is this open source model where we are, are confident enough in our permissions setups and, and in the and in the uh, assembly of materials that we uh, were confident could be distributed on an open source model uh, and 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 distributing it that way on a platform that legal academics are comfortable with. Can we talk and a the second creative, about the Creative Commons license is that much yeah. further along as well? That you so part of your infrastructure. I mean, there's there's Word as infrastructure, but there's also the legal infrastructure. Of, yeah. of the rights and, and the open source idea. And it's because it's 2016, all these things are that much further along, uh, that much more familiar to people. Uh, yeah. And so you get the benefit of that. And right. so, so much of what we use are already public domain materials. I mean, the yeah. main thing that you discuss in a class, you know, typically is True. a case can be yeah. a portion of an article which is under copyright, probably should not be, but but is. And <laughs> You'd be uh, surprised. One of the things that we learned as we were going through and deciding what articles we want to uh, include, uh, one of the things you'd be surprised is how uh, few of the, uh, the scholarly journals uh, who published articles prior to the 1976 Copyright Act, how few of them actually renewed the copyright in, in their back issues. Uh, so that was something, you know, I'm not going to point to any particular source in our materials, but that's something that people who are concerned about copyrights uh, in uh, putting together course materials should be aware of, uh, and that it helps to do a little bit of legwork to figure out what's in the public domain and what isn't. Can we talk about teacher's manuals for a second? Sure. This is a, 
I I think when I first started teaching property, it was 2005, was, you know, it was brand new. And, and I did look at it because I used Singer for the first couple of years. And, and I looked at that teacher's manual. And I, I guess I don't remember whether it was helpful or not. I'm sure it was. Um, but I have not used any teacher's manuals. I mean, obviously, I haven't used any textbooks. But even for, you know, I've just never looked at them. How should law professors think about teachers? Man, you provide one, right? You provide yeah. one for this. I, I haven't seen it, but um, how do well, you think? I, the password just. I have really mixed feelings text. about it. Uh, well, I think they're really important, but I want to hear from Jeremy what what his theory of of teachers' manuals is. So, um, my theory of teachers' manuals is that they are important in two contexts. One is for new law faculty. Uh, and the other is for law faculty teaching a course outside of their primary area of expertise, right? Uh, where you're not as familiar with the theoretical literature, you're not as familiar with all the moves in particular arguments over particular areas of doctrine, uh, and where you don't really have a professional incentive to get particularly familiar with it particularly quickly, uh, where your your main incentive is to just be able to teach the course, right? Uh, so I, when I was a uh, 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 new uh, law teacher, I adopted Duke Muneer because it was the textbook that I had in uh, when I was a law student. Uh, and I and Duke Muneer has a capacious teacher's manual with lots of problems and answers to all the problems in the text and, and so forth. Uh, and a lot of people tout that as a good reason to adopt Duke Muneer. Um, and I, I see the logic of that um, because, you know, as much as I knew about property law just from reading the primary materials and even reading the casebook, it helps to have a gut check uh, when you're just starting out in an unfamiliar area and say, did I get that exactly right? Do I really understand what the moving parts are here? Uh, and so I think that that kind of reassurance uh, can be helpful as a scholar and teacher is learning a new field. I don't believe I went back to the teacher's manual my second time teaching from Duke Muneer and, and, or ever since. I think that that's consistent with, uh, Christian, what you said your experience was with the Singer casebook. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, and I think that's fine. Um, I think that teacher's manuals are a way of lowering adoption costs to adopters, right? We are asking a lot uh, of, of instructors of the property law course uh, by releasing this project. We're saying, look, you should switch from something you are familiar with, which uh, has been tested in the marketplace and been found to be successful, to something that is new and different and maybe a little bit more work than what you're used to. Uh, but you should do it for your students. Uh, and uh, you'll find that uh, if, if enough people do this, there's going to be a community built around this uh, that will really be good for the teaching of property law and hopefully, you know, in the future, other uh, subjects in the law school curriculum. Uh, and we want to make it easier for you to do that. We're going to give you whatever tools might be helpful to you to do that. If you use PowerPoint slides, we'll give you some slides that you can work with. If you need a teacher's manual to really understand an unfamiliar area of doctrine outside of your area of specialty or just because you're new at this and you're not sure you can figure it out on your own, we'll give you what we can uh, to make it easier for you. Um, and, you know, that's a big part of trying to push uh, this open source model in a marketplace that currently does not have a lot of uh, examples of that. I, I definitely get the provision of the teacher's manual on the, uh, on the supply side. I get the supply yeah. side arguments, the demand side argument that, that I struggle with a bit uh, on the one hand, I should say on maybe on all the hands. Uh, if, <laughs> if there's something in that manual, which helps you understand the subject matter better, why not share it with the students? Yeah. And, you know, so, I mean, there, there is a function of the teacher's manual, I understand we can get into it, which is not just about helping the teacher, you know, act out some sleight of hand um, and, you know, appearing to be more knowledgeable than he or she is. And uh, or, you know, it, like if the teacher's manual helps you understand it, it's like, OK, this is a good gut check, then it ought to be in the materials that the students. Well, it helps you see. understand it in the teacher's role. Uh, and that role is different from the student's role. And I don't think it's sinister or, you know, merits the phrase sleight of hand. Um, I, say, it, I said one function could be to, you know, enable you to, you know, you know, it's the hiding the ball stuff, right? It does yeah. this advance a kind of hiding the ball. That's the only question. And I understand there could be functions which are not that. I, I'm of the view that whatever could possibly be helpful for the students, they should have access to. So there's, there's yeah. something about this, like hiding the teacher's manual that is... They do have access to it in the person of the teacher. 
and in their experience of the material in the context of the class, right? There, that um, it. So, so I think I, I agree with everything Jeremy said. I would add only that uh, I think teachers' manuals can also play a really great role in how you actually produce the book itself, especially if you include notes and questions, that the process of writing answers to convey to a teacher what you had in mind when you posed a question helps you pose better questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that back and forth process iteratively as you're preparing the book, uh, I actually think m- makes the book better. So for those not familiar with, um, with legal case books, a, a very common pattern is to have a case, an excerpt of a case or an excerpt of some other legal writing followed by notes and questions. And these notes and questions are yeah, yeah, <laughs> sometimes, you know, famously, thorny for students right they can take a lot of time or they can be skipped over it just kind of depends on how the how the classes how the classes run and what do you so I, I you know um we got cut off there but i'm trying to remember how i was approaching this but i was curious whether you guys thought there would be any utility just in putting the answers there I mean, there are questions, yeah. right? Why not just put, because a lot of these, a lot of the questions in the notes and question sections don't have uniform answers. There's not an easy answer. It's a, it's a suggestion for like how to think about it or, right. you know, what are some reasons why Marbury versus Madison might've been wrongly decided and that asks students to engage in this kind of counterfactual thinking about how everything would be different. Um, yeah. Why not just put your, you know, thoughts down and then in class you could discuss this further. Yeah. So I think there are different schools of thought about how to do that. And I think across the different authors in this project, there are different approaches to the notes and questions. Um, My notes and questions, for example, tend to uh, be more along the lines of questions that don't really have clear answers one way or another. Uh, Others uh, tend to answer questions that have particular answers derived from particular minor cases that have dealt with the issue. Mm -hmm. Uh, And typically for those kinds of uh, questions, we will provide a citation to the case uh, so that the interested student can in fact read that case and get the answer. Um, And, you know, with respect to what function they serve for the student, I think part of the exercise, particularly in first year courses is learning to do all the things that lawyers are going to be called on to do uh, in practice, um, including being able to read a case and figure out which parts are important, right? Right. So some some casebook uh, some casebook manuals include briefs of cases. Uh, I have included briefs of most of my primary cases in my sections of the teacher's manual, uh, just because you know sometimes it helps uh, to have. To have that second gloss, you know, I, I feel like repetition is useful and repeating, uh, uh, repeating reading things in, in more than one format can be helpful in retention. And retention is a big issue with me in my teaching. Um, and beyond that, um, uh, you know, some of these questions that raise bigger theoretical issues uh, are the, you know, they're the kinds of things that students ought to think about just on their own mm-hmm. first. Right. Um, and, uh, and, and I worry in some respects, not in a hiding the ball sense, although that is a potential uh, drawback of this approach, I worry about giving them a discussion that leads them to believe that they have the answer. That they answer. have the answer, yeah. Right? I, I, was, I was thinking so about much this of what too, we do in, yeah. Yeah, so much of what we do in the first year of law school is trying to get students who are very talented students, have always done well in school, uh, trying to get students to realize that what what lawyers do is different from what undergraduate students do, uh, and that you know we and that legal education is not about getting the answers. It's about learning the habits of mind, the particular moves, the particular arguments uh, that go into you know the practice of law. Yeah, I think this is a because I, I I I do have problems in in my materials, especially you know I'll put in old exams, I'll put in old. Old, old problems from old exams and, and places and, and other kinds of quiz problems. And so I will sprinkle those in my, in my materials. I think what I fail to do, although I do this in class, but it would be really useful to do it at the time is to, is to give questions to kind of cogitate on in advance of the meeting. Yeah. And I, and I think NNQ's done well. They're few in number. 
they are very tightly tailored to the purpose for reading that case. Right. And and they get you to learn how to inter- they can help a student learn how to interrogate him or herself in an effective and productive way to think about things before having the conversation and to give yourself time to mull. Right. Yeah, it, but it has it, to be that. So it, it's it kind of works up against so many, you know, if you could change everything at once, maybe you change everything at once. But, <laughs> you know, uh, so, so the the students need to understand that there isn't an answer they're supposed to have written down somewhere ready for class. Right. That these are not, you know what I mean? Like these are me- yeah. these are things to think about. And and if you think about them, maybe it will help you see this reading in a different way rather than get to class and all of a sudden have the professor like a, with a magic wand reveal things that you, that were hidden. Right. Um, Right. Yeah. And I think if you're, if you're a first semester, first year law teacher, um, I think you're uniquely responsible (laughs) for trying to help students understand that fact about the way law teaching materials work. Mm -hmm. I don't know how many do that, but. Yeah, I mean, I do that explicitly, right? I, you know, in the first the first three modules that I use in the in the foundation section of my build of the casebook about what it means to own something, like what the rights of owners are, what types of things can be owned, the subject matter of property, and then how particular things become owned by particular people, how the legal system allocates these ownership rights. All of those things are questions that don't have clear answers, right? Uh, and the the closer you look at them, the, the the blurrier the answers get. And part of what I tell my students I am doing in these chapters is tell is trying to get them to realize that there aren't answers, there are arguments, there are reasons that cut for and against on particular sets of facts. And and you know, change one fact and your conclusion could change. And that the job of the lawyer is not necessarily to get the answer, but to be able to make the arguments. And to be able to recognize the reasons that would counsel for one outcome or another, uh, the way that I'm going to expect them to do on a final exam, for example. Um, And, you know, that is a lesson that bears repeating over and over again in the first year of law school. I think it's interesting. I'm just thinking of my own experience as a student and and maybe it varies from book to book. But maybe once I learned the lesson in, in one book, I just carried it over. And that was almost always. I I remember certain books where there were just so many questions uh, so many notes and questions and a lot of string sites. So they're trying to do a lot of cleanup in those notes and questions for yeah, things. Yeah. Which might, and, and the lesson that I learned very early on is just skip all that. Yeah, just read the yeah. case. It, <laughs> yeah. NQs are notorious. Like, it's so easy to do them terribly. Yeah. Right? yeah. And I think when we were – part of this is the generations of, of law book production and law casebook production. And I think we – we're in law school at a time when the major casebooks had been produced in a different era, and maybe it was when they had greater scholarly weight, greater mm-hmm. weight in your production as a scholar, and so they yeah. looked different for that reason, right? Uh, and, and maybe in this very particular was the place they would look most different. Um, but but for whatever the explanation, uh, we certainly. I mean, I remember thinking as a law student that the NNQs were just were were terrible and the, the and, and a distraction and worthless I and stupid. This. Yeah. Um, and and I and that was part of why I was so. Uh, uh, and my co-author and I were so dedicated to doing it right and doing it well because uh, yeah. it's so easy to do it badly, and it's and it's injurious if you do it badly. I mean, you're teaching yeah. a really bad lesson if you say, "Here's this stuff in a book that's really valuable for this course that you're supposed to ignore and and have contempt for." What a terrible lesson! What if nobody yeah. thinks that though? And and I mean, are you confident that you're? In and cues, I love this phrase. In and cues, we got to have some some lingo. I love it that you're throwing the lingo around. <laughs> you got to have good abreast. Yeah, <laughs> obviously, obs. Um, so these in cues that you're making, um, the these uh, are you confident that they are better? That, that in other words, does the author see them as the product of something something mindful? But the students are still receiving them in the same way that you received your in cues. Um. Go ahead, Joe. Yeah, well, it's possible. I mean, I think with the feedback we've gotten from people other than us who have taught with our book, which has been about eight years now, and a number of different people um, re- using it more than one time, uh, um, uh, the feedback we get from them is that they that they think they're very good and better than the sort of stuff we were exposed to as law students. But, you know, of course, your mileage may vary. This is always the case. Yeah, and I think that's reflected in the the, the kind of 
differences across the authors in our project and how we approach the notes in question too. I, mean, uh, I think your mileage may vary is probably the right answer to that question as to whether the N's and Q's are, uh, are, are, are doing their job or doing the best job that they could be. Um, and it, you know, it depends what you want to use them for. I mean, there, there are also different purposes that could be served by notes and questions depending on what the primary source is that they follow, right? Um, you're going to have a different set of notes and questions following, you know, a case like, well, like Marbury versus Madison, for example, than you will uh, following a case on the mechanics of, of zoning variances, right? There's just different kinds of, of issues presented. Some, you know, some are more theoretical and reduce very quickly to big opposing policy imperatives or, or normative commitments or what have you. And some are about the, you know, the particularities of how particular rules of legal doctrine play out in particular circumstances and change one circumstance. How does that affect your conclusion? And, 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 you know, there's value in, in, in both. And that value I think varies depending on the source material. So another way of cutting this problem or thinking about this is how about a casebook which is nothing but notes and questions? So, yeah. you know, so the question is like, what do the, what do the N and Qs, what do they add over just coming and having read a representative case or a key case and then having a discussion? So what should the text source material be in advance of the conversational portion of the, of, of learning, which occurs in, in the classroom or whatever else, you know, slides, whatever other media you're using? Uh, what do those notes and questions add that couldn't be done through dialogue? But you could flip that on its head and say, well, what does the what does case reading add? Other than maybe you have a course just in case reading and you get used to reading these cases. Um, and, and if you were doing such a thing, you would have them read mostly contemporary cases rather than a bunch of old Cardozo opinions, I suppose. Right. Hey, <laughs> I'm not saying I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying that, you know, if what you're trying to teach right. is how to read cases that will be, you know, in order to be able to do that in practice or right. what have you, then you should read cases from, you know, recent decades. Sure. Uh, so, so you could just do this. And I, I've been attracted to this idea of, of thinking about how to teach a class directly, right. Rather than through inference from uh, patterns of cases, which is, is not exactly just the pure N and Q model, but it would be more of the, Prose is not the right word, but but it would be just be more direct. And and some one one approach to notes and questions is direct teaching. Like, okay, so this case represented this particular thing. Maybe it was a judicial review, but then in note one you see there's been a follow up case which has this principle in it, and you just say it directly, and you and you do the citation. Or with adverse possession, you say some states require the payment of taxes in order to right. uh, in order to claim adverse possession. See, for example, this thing. That's just a statement, a declarative statement about what the law is. Or, or even a note which says jurisdictions disagree on the hostility element in adverse possession. Some require uh, good faith. Some some uh, require that you don't have good faith and, and right. some have an objective requirement. And here is what that means. And you could talk about it. Why not just do that directly? Why even have a case on adverse possession rather than just describe the doctrine? So that's yeah. totally flipping and on its I head think, what I know, said in earlier. In our case yeah. book, we have, we have done a little bit of that. So for example, we have a note on – Ratione soli. We have a note on uh, negotiability. Uh, we have, you know, and and there are some subjects where a case is not particularly helpful. Yeah, uh, right. and 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 that's fine. I think one of the interesting part of this is I think the the system that we as law professors have inherited from, you know, well, you know, from Langdell, frankly, uh, of of how law is taught. Um, where rather than being uh, organized around skills, it's organized around uh, you know substantive legal doctrines, uh, and yet we still need to inculcate the skills, and so we try to uh, include in our uh, pedagogy regarding particular substantive legal doctrines uh, different approaches uh, and different tools that will incidentally help to cultivate those skills, right? So reading a case is one, briefing a case, obviously. Um, but then there may be others that uh, that are better served by the kinds of uh, methods that, Christian, you're describing. And, you know, I know people who do all of these different things well. Um, but, you know, frankly, we should all be a little bit more conscious about how we approach our pedagogy for that reason that, you know, it's not necessarily organized or we haven't necessarily inherited a scheme of organization that necessarily lends itself to the most efficient means of, of 
of uh, of attaining the learning outcomes we want to attain. Yeah, and there's just so much uncertainty, right? There's just so much uncertainty about, well, there is existential uncertainty. What are we trying to do here, <laughs> yeah. right? Which is like, because we are also, we're not just preparing people for a profession. We are, all, are also instantiating it right. and affecting right. it. Uh, further, and, and it's not just about the profession either. It's about, you know, law. <laughs> and then it's sort about, of assuming any one answer to that question, what would actually work? What would actually work? there's uncertainty about that yeah. too. Yeah, and people try to measure it. And then, they, then there's questions about the value of measurement because you measure something, you change it. And, you know, there are all these yeah. problems uh, with, with figuring this out. And so maybe heterodoxy is is the best approach in the in the interim. And, and, and open-mindedness, you know, shifting, which is I think what it sounds like what we've all all three of us have, have, have done in our, in our careers, which is to try different things yep. and, and not be wedded to decades old notes and, and being afraid to change because right. it takes some, you know, but again, this gets back to how we started the conversation. Like the more effort you put into, this is effort you put in, which, which a lot of people, you know, if you're, if you're in our profession and you are particularly career driven, this will be anathema to you because the the inputs from uh, that it requires to change from one set of notes to a new set of notes to a new format of teaching are inputs which will never be rewarded in outputs that redound to your benefit, right? Mm, that redound yeah. to your students' benefit. That sounds extreme. Um, I think it depends on the school. Yeah, um, but I'm talking in the main. I mean, you in, the, in the, right in yeah. the main, I think that's I think it's largely true. Uh, d- it shouldn't be true. I'm not saying it should be true. I understand that successful. Uh, being perceived uh, as a successful teacher, which is in part a function of your students' actual <laughs> perception of you and success in the class, uh, only it, in part is an input yeah. into your overall uh, career trajectory. But but I take your point, and I agree with your point that um, it, whatever may have been true uh, in days past, it's certainly not true anymore. That uh, someone would wisely be counseled to pour enormous amounts of time into these pursuits like for example early in your legal teaching career yeah um and maybe even ever right but uh you know i think um the which is why getting back to jeremy's point right lowering the cost of adoption here is is key so a good teacher's manual a good you know because people want different things they both in terms of you know the the materials available to them to teach the class they want different kinds of experiences in terms of what they provide to their students and so uh, so this done a real, a, these five promising. folks you, Jeremy you and the others have done a real service to to you know everyone who's teaching property um but but even law teaching more generally and and so one one thing i'm hoping you know cuz there's nothing nothing says i'm your friend like putting stuff on your to-do list um is is uh is you know i hope that one one or more of you will will write up something for the journal of legal education um you know creating an open source casebook platform and where where you just sort of walk through look if this is what you want to do um this is how we did it and and some lessons learned uh some mistakes to avoid um some questions to think about so that people who want to do the open source torts book or the open source whatever book have another resource to think about, um, and it could be you know targeted at doing it as a group. Now there are do you Matthew, use Martin Ma- Matthew Bodie wrote a piece for journal. He did, and it's a great piece. And that was at the same time I was coming out now. with Hydrotext. Yeah, there's um, and, and and do, do you use Barton Beebe's trademark book? You know, I I don't. Um, so when I dropped. Aspen. I had been using uh, Graham Didwoody's and, and Mark Janice's Aspen title. Right. Uh, when I dropped Aspen, I needed to find a new one, and it was I, Barton's casebook was not out yet at the time. I don't believe, and, uh, and so what I settled on was uh, Jane Ginsburg and Jessica Littman's book, which they had just moved, I think, from Foundation to Lexis or the other way around. I forget where it is now. Yeah. But in any event, they had moved specifically so uh, specifically for the purpose of of uh, switching to a lower cost loose leaf model. I think the loose leaf version of their casebook was something like $60, yeah. uh, which was, you know, attractive enough to me right. uh, that, that it made sense to make the switch. And I've um, taught from that book. That's a great book. And I, you yeah. know, it was some years ago, but I, but it, I remember it being a, a quite an excellent book. Yeah, it is. It, it, it's, it's a, I like the selection of cases. 
Um, it is one of those books that I feel the need to do the choose your own adventure approach where I'm taking <laughs> things completely out of order. It's just not organized the way that I would organize a trademarks course. I much preferred the organization of uh, Graham Dinwiddie's and Mark Janice's book. Uh, but you know that's uh, you know that's one of the things that we've got to that we've got to do right. There are no perfect options. There's only uh, you know the options that we have and the least bad ones. Unless you're, w- you're willing to invest the what has it been two years now that we've invested five of us in making a completely new casebook that is exactly what you want. Um, so awesome, really interesting, and and I think it's going to keep people are going to keep experimenting. Um, and, uh, and the more experiments that are done, the easier it is to do the next round of experiments, uh, and because they become resources for ways of thinking about stuff. And, and so I just, I, you know, I think it's great. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for doing this. I mean, this is the kind of thing too, even though I've got my own materials that I've been, you know, uh, kind of whittling away at for, for years now and, and gradually improving and changing, you know, I, I could easily see myself just chucking it and adopting your thing and, and well, reordering them. I, but and I've got components, too, that I might add in there. You could contribute, right. Exactly, yeah. So this is so seems exactly. awesome to me. Yeah. So this is what I've been telling people who have been asking me over email since the announcement of the new book uh, that they ought to consider. You know, you don't have to throw away what you're doing. If there's a particular piece of what you're doing that you're not entirely happy with, Come see and how comes and see how we approach that subject, and see if you want to just pluck a module or you know a, a few pages even uh, from the open source property text uh, and just add it to what you're already doing or substitute it in for what you're already doing because the cost to you is pretty low and the cost to your students is zero. Yeah, uh, and it's 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 an easy way of starting to move, you know, it's, it's, it's our own version of the thin end of the wedge, right? It's, it's an easy way of starting to move towards an open source model that's going to be better for your students and hopefully ultimately better for your teaching. Awesome. Terrific. Yeah, your Wi-Fi is starting to break up a little bit again, so uh, okay. we may be tempting fate by, by going longer, <laughs> but, but I think right. we, we got the gist of that. We got the gist of that, and it, it, was, it was great. So thanks so a bunch, So the short Jeremy. answer yeah. is, just a, a, the short version is, just adopt a piece of it, and it's, you know, it's low cost to you and zero cost to your students. Give it a try. Cool. Excellent. And uh, so next time, legal sets. Sure. <laughs>